Hello, Michael. How's your um, boat trip? I hear you've been like, you know, getting out already before the end of the year, just, you know, <laughs> sinking tinnies, <laughs> sinking tinnies, like casting the casting line. I'm so not a fisherman, but. Uh, sinking my tinny. No, uh, mate, it's good. Needed a bit of a time to relax and do some of those things because I haven't had the chance this year, actually. I, um, you make it, I want to clarify, my boat is not, to call it a boat, it's, a little fishing tinny let's it's not like some 30 foot bloody offshore thing um but no it's been nice to do some of those things it hadn't been in the water for about nine months and i've barely been fishing given how crazy this year has been but it's um it's good we're here on the last podcast of the year so i know we've brought her home strong haven't we there's been some good guests has and i think we might enjoy a beer or two on this one just to um see off the year in style fair enough what's going on with you how was the how was the tail end of the year Oh yeah, well it's been pretty good. I think uh, you know, it's, uh, if it, I think everyone right. It's just an emotional uh, outpouring after three years that maybe um, in, in time we'd rather, in some ways, forget. But uh, the legacy will carry on. So all oh, pretty good, mate. I've got to be honest, um, and I am looking forward to putting the feet up, taking a few weeks off, and uh, and coming back fresh uh, in the new year. Nice. Before we get into the guests, obviously just want to take a bit of an opportunity to say Happy New Year, Merry Christmas to all of our guests. We will not be back this side of Christmas or the New Year, but um, hopefully everyone gets to the, the break that they've been looking forward to and some time to unwind with family and friends and do whatever it is that you want to do after. I think you're right, like it does feel like this is the first Christmas in, or the first holiday period in three years, right? So I think there's a bit of cumulative pent up desire to take a bit of a break. So hopefully everyone gets a really good opportunity to do that yeah i think um we we both know and uh, respect all the uh, operators and industry participants for just pulling out the stops the last few years it's had everything and um you know touch wood we are we we, we do have a good end and uh and and everyone gets a gets a break because one, one thing we know is that 2023 is definitely going to be exciting so Anyway, um, who have we got on today? Uh, mate, today we have Duncan Thompson, who is the CEO of the Kick-On Group, um, which is a business that was, I guess, formed about one and a half years ago, two years ago. Duncan uh, has been around the traps for a long time, really widely recognised as um, as not only a great leader of, of people, but a really good operator as well. And they've had some pretty big acquisitions and developments over the last one and a half to two years. Uh, Conti down in Sorrento in Melbourne, which is huge, really amazing kind of development down there. Quite some pretty iconic pubs up in Queensland uh, and some others down in Melbourne. So I've been wanting to get him on for a long time just to hopefully get him to share uh, some of his insight around leadership and management and then talk more generally about what they're doing. So yeah, that's who we have. Wonderful. Should we uh, begin? Let's do it. Well, Duncan, thank you for joining us on the Back of House podcast. Great to be with you guys. Pleasure. It's been a long time coming. I've been uh, I wanted to get you on for quite some time, but um, I think uh, you would be aware, as would our listeners, obviously, one of the main reasons um, for this podcast in general is to kind of talk about the pathways and trajectories that different people have had to get to different levels in the industry. And um, you're obviously leading a pretty diverse hospitality group now spanning multiple states. But can you give us a bit of – actually, there's going to be – two parts apparently our series has turned into the two-part question podcast but uh, firstly how you personally found your way into hospitality um you know from you know the age of 18 or if it was beforehand um and then if you could describe the company that you're in now and and what it looks like what you do who you are 
Yeah, sure. Uh, well, look, I think my path was probably reasonably traditional with, with most people where you finish school and you sort of start working um, casually behind the bar. The, probably the, the difference for me was my first job was in Canberra where I grew up um, with a company or a concept called Bobby McGee's, which was an American sort of entertainment restaurant slash nightclub. So I was quite lucky in that aspect because being an American concept, they're very, very big on training and structure and process and systems. And so, you know, my, my introductory to my first two weeks of working behind the bar was just two weeks of cocktail study where you had to be able to write 50 cocktails, uh, recipe, content, and then we and went all the way through to learning how to bartend with, with blindfolds on, which sounds a bit extreme, but, you know, an 18-year-old kid. And, and then the culture of that place was just fun. You know, it was young kid working behind the bar, big nights out, you know, enjoy work, enjoy after work. Uh, and that was sort of great. So I think I, I fell into a good environment to start with, probably first and foremost, which, which made me quite lucky. And then they just sort of hit me up um, one point and said, look, we'd love you to relocate you to, because they had three sites, one in Canberra, one in Melbourne and one in Sydney. And they said, we want to transfer you to Melbourne. So I just said, well, why not? Off we go. So five days to pack up my, my house where I was renting with a couple of mates and down to Melbourne. And I stayed with that group for about five years and ended up working throughout the three three assets. So for a young kid getting flown around the country, staying in hotels and living the hospitality life, it was, it was great. So um, that sort of progressed me to, I think, you know, you start to realise at some point I've either got to, you know, go out and get a real job or um, take this seriously. So... I then sort of thought, okay, maybe management's where I need to put my mind to. Um, I then got my first GM role where they brought me back to Canberra for the same company, and that was probably the first kind of um, initiation into serious management. Um, and I remember sitting on the plane, I've sort of told this story in a couple of podcasts before, sitting on the plane, you know, where the, the pilot sort of ramps up the speed and you're about to take off, and I sat back in my seat and like, shit, what am I doing? I don't know how to be a general manager <laughs> i've just been running bars and nightclubs and just being the fun guy so i just thought you know what there's only one way to do it just do what i think was right um and i went into that that job quite vividly as i'm going to be the leader that i felt i needed when i was young you know learn from the good and learn from the bad and so you know we had um, a lot of great success doing that i think it was just a good team and then then that sort of sort of got me to that point. Then I came back to Melbourne and worked for the um, um, HMC Hospitality Management Company, which was the Lion Nathan funded uh, Victorian pub buyout. So that was that was good. That was sort of into the, sort of the serious pubs, and then just made my way through you know, pubs, and nightclubs, and then I think there was a point where I realised I wanted to make sure that I, if I am going to take this industry seriously, I need to know more about it. I didn't want to be pigeonholed as just a pub guy or a publican or just a restaurant person or a nightclub person or a cocktail person. So I really wanted to get to know the industry. So I sort of bounced around a little bit through Melbourne, some of the bigger nightclubs in Crown Casino and some of the smaller groups and then sort of made my way up into sort of group GM type type roles and then was lucky enough to diversify across into some larger precincts like Art Centre Precinct and Melbourne Racing Club where you got an idea of scale 
And then I was presented a really interesting opportunity to kind of branch out and started my own publishing company where we made a magazine called Drink Magazine, which was all about sort of promoting Melbourne's cocktail nightlife, which was, you know, probably a bit of a silly thing when we look back because it wasn't a financial success by any means. But, you know, we've got the publication up to about 15,000 copies a month. You know, it was a free press thing, but it was a gaming insight where we were sort of wheeling and dealing advertising strategies with the alcohol company. So I got to see how their funding worked, which is really fascinating. And then that sort of, you know, progressed me through to sort of stamping out and doing my own business and doing some consulting around master planning and, and precinct work. And I, and I think at that point was probably when I was like, okay, I feel like I've got enough strings to my bow. I really need to find the right thing where I can kind of bring it all together. And that's a bit of a challenge, I think, in the industry. There's probably a few people, similar like that, that might be listening that are, you know, at that senior management level, but are looking for the right, the right role. And so I was lucky enough to catch up with Craig Shearer and the, the Continental and Sorrentex sort of brought us together and, and now the, the CEO of the Kick On Group, which is a new, newly founded group, only a year and a half old. It's, it's really a dream role for me because it's kind of where I've always wanted to progress to from, from overseeing a diverse portfolio, but also the leadership and the people development and, you know, developing hospitality concepts was something that was quite dear to my heart. So I'm very, very grateful and proud to be very well where I am today. And the... Um I'm sure there's a million things running through Michael's head, particularly around your foray into publishing, because that's Mike's background as well. But uh, the can you just describe the group now and the venues? It's, it's pretty diverse. If you were to weigh up each venue against the other, right? Yeah, absolutely, and and intentionally so. So I think we we talk about. Look, this might sound a bit silly to say, but in hindsight. The the lockdown and the pandemic has actually been a bit of a blessing for us from a business point of view. I'm not trying to downgrade the impact it's had to other businesses, but because what it did is it made us or forced us to actually work 100% on the business because we didn't have any businesses to work in. And at that time, we uh, had the Terminus Hotel and that was sort of a merger of some other venues that Craig Shearer had previously owned and then Kick On Group was going to become the, the overarching sort of mother company and start to facilitate a, um, an acquisition and growth pathway. But before we got to that point, we were sort of locked upstairs at the Terminus you know, drinking a few stone and woods and sort of doing some brainstorming whiteboarding sessions where we actually thought, okay, well, what? What company do we want to run? We don't just want a big bunch of guys that go, oh, yeah, we've got to get 10 venues or we get 20 venues. We're like, well, hang on, what sort of venues do we want? What do we want to be known for? You know, if we were to put Kick On Group into a box and we gave that box to someone and they opened it, what, what, what does it look like? So we spent a lot of time working through that. And the big thing that we all kind of resonated with the, the other directors was we wanted to oversee and manage a diverse portfolio for the reason that it means that each individual asset has its own concept, its own strategy, its own unique focus. So we never felt like we wanted to be a cookie-cutter kind of pub group. So that's sort of where we kicked off our our growth pipeline. So it was initially Terminus Hotel in Victoria's Terminus Hotel and then the recently refurbished Continental Hotel um, down in Sorrento, which is a joint venture partnership with the... Um, the property developers that have put that together and an intercontinental hotel group. We've got another bar that we're developing in Collingwood that will open probably new early or mid-2023. And then the bigger venues are all up north in Queensland, so the Plough Inn in South Bank, which is a fantastic 
iconic kind of great Queensland pub. Then we re- and we also had the collective in Palm Beach, which is a sort of food concept, five kitchens in, in one space. And then the new acquisitions that we bought since the kick-on entity was formed was the Osborne Hotel was our first acquisition, Fortitude Valley, um, which has just been an incredible business, great staff that we're able to bring on board. It's just been been thriving, which which we're very grateful for. Then we went up to Townsville, um, the Watermark Hotel, which is on the Strand, um, which is pretty much like a large restaurant and and bar that we felt was a really good good asset to grab because it was very food driven uh, really hot good quality food but it just needed a bit of love the previous owner had been there for a long time it was just time to, to hand over the reins so we acquired that one and then we've also just recently acquired the um the grand view in cleveland which is queensland's oldest licensed venue and looks a bit like queensland oldest licensed venue but and it's a good example of how we how we acquire sites because when Craig first said, "Oh, go and have a look at this site," I think there's something to it, and it's a beautiful old heritage building, but it is old, um, and I say that respectfully. And we went with our marketing director and Tom and I. We sort of walked around the grounds. We sat down in some sort of old kind of plastic furniture and stuff. And Tom looked at me. He goes, "What are we doing?" Um, and I said, "Well, let's just." And we grabbed a beer and we sat, out and then it's. One of those moments where when you sit and you relax and all of a sudden you start to see what it can be, you know, and all of a sudden the the beautiful historic nature of the building and you then you start to visualise, okay, imagine that refurbished. Then you look at the grounds and the view and the watering. Like, imagine if we build a you know, larger um, pavilion-style eatery, you know, all, and then, then your mind starts going a million miles an hour and then all of a sudden you fall in love with, with the site and the assets. So for us... Yes, the business needs to be diverse, but also the building needs to be a really big part of it. So all our venues, we, we kind of, it sounds a bit silly, but we, we generally love the buildings. So that's that's sort of where we're at and, and that's what, what we look for. Right. And um, I guess how hard is it to find venues that fit within that objective? Because I could, I, could, I mean, finding businesses that, I think when we last spoke, you were saying that, you know, there's a, there is a reasonably iconic nature to, to some, if not all of them. You know, got the Conti, uh, in the Conti, sorry, and Queensland's oldest licensed venue. Pretty good sort of iconic facets that you can talk about. I guess the pool of businesses that you might or assets you might be able to acquire would be pretty thin, mm. right? Like, how do you how do you go about identifying what could fit within that profile for you? Yeah, we have three categories we look for within the portfolio. The the first one and probably the most obvious one is large footprint pubs you know great gas gastro pubs we've got a really good exec chef who's one of our directors jake first so our, we're very passionate about making really good food which we're very proud of that because we feel that's what's going to build a sustainable business so we don't want necessarily want to go after the high-flying you know fancy cocktail bars that's you know you're in a bit for six or eight months then it fades away but so big large footprint gastro pubs are really attractive to us so that's that's one portfolio and that's usually an acquisition of an existing venue that we feel like we can apply our operational governance and you know some clever marketing and maybe some um capital in injection to enhance it the other part, the other portfolio we look at is more greenfield sites, which is very much like the Continental, which is usually a joint venture partnership with a property developer. And the Conti's really opened up the door for that. So we're, we're in lots of different conversations with developers where they are building a pretty impressive asset, whether it be a, um, a high-level luxury hotel where they only want the major hotel provider to do the rooms and they want to 
dedicated hospitality group to to run the operations. So there's probably what about three, four? There's four of those at the moment. Really exciting projects, and they're probably three to four years because you're you're literally at ground level working with them on designing uh, the various levels to go through the DA process and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So we're in some you know what we're pretty confident will be pretty hot properties um, when they come out. And we really like that because that means you can actually if you get the right partnership with the right developer, then you really have that strong collaboration where where everybody everybody wins and you can get the concept the way you want it to be so that's that's a what we see as a really good diversification of where we're at but also adds a lot of scope to the to the group and then the other one is more like the collective in palm beach we see as potentially scalable businesses where we could run multiple businesses of the same brand it gives us a bit of scalability um so there is that sort of our our portfolio buckets if, if that makes sense can i just double click on this um joint the, the developer model where you're greenfield and you're putting in a F&B offering alongside accommodation. Is that is that what I understood you're doing? Because one of the things that Luke and I have the pleasure of sitting on the panel each year is at AHICE where we debate how do you get good F&B in hotels. It's just this perennial discussion. And then so I, I guess um, I'm just trying to imagine the physicality of this. Is it, and I suppose it only really matter if it's integrated into one building or is it kind of like a pub next to a hotel? Is it a kind of you know, first few layers of hospitality, then, a you know, accommodation above. What, can you give me some examples of the types of developments you're working on if it's not confidential? Uh, yeah, a few of them are confidential uh, due to the DA approval process, but there's a combination of both, Michael. So there's there's one where there's three levels of F&B within the building, so ground level, foyer, sort of um, cafe, tapas bar, then you've got second-level functions and then a rooftop kind of um, cocktail bar, and then, then all the accommodation is within that building. And the SLA agreement is literally just one, one company provides, you know, rooms, housekeeping, front of house, and we provide all the F&B and F&B operations, and it's almost set up like two separate businesses and entities within one physical building. Then there's some others that we're looking at that, more to your first point, are really large footprint pubs that do have accommodation as part of that. And, look, to be honest, we're sort of open to that. Like we, One of our visions is to sort of be game changers of Australian hospitality is what we'd like to pride ourselves. We, we don't say that to be cheesy disruptors and we're going to flip things on its head, but it's it's not limiting ourselves to say, well, all to grow, all we need to be is just publicans because we think hospitality is a holistic industry. So there's obviously retail bottle shops. We've got four of those. We're looking at growing those. Some of these pub acquisitions that we're looking at or partnerships, there is a conversation about would we run the accommodation. Uh, obviously, that means we've got to you know, diversify our org chart to bring in the right people to, to do that, but we're certainly not shying away from that because we like the idea of you know, the more control you have, I think the more levers you can pull to ensure that you're creating you know, a, a great experience for your customers. It seems to be a pretty common... Um, I may be incorrect, someone who knows more about the sector than I do um, historically may say I'm wrong, but it seems to be happening. Uh, I'd be a, quite a trend in terms of bringing on-premise hospitality operators into the accommodations environment more than ever. If you look at Queensland, there's quite a few examples, like look at the Khalil, for example, with most of their F&B apart from lobbies, external operators, Hotel X is the same with the Garnham guys. And then um, I think Capella just announced they're bringing in the Bentley guys in Sydney and um, I know Accor are doing it in a few instances as well. So it's pretty interesting to see that that, that trend happening and obviously you're doing that at the Conti right to a pretty high level as well yeah absolutely i mean it's a really 
I think it's just a screams opportunity, huh? and it's it's good because it means that you've got you know younger, smaller, mid-sized groups like us that are being challenged about how big you can go, and it's also challenging because the developers are also challenging the larger hotel operators to say, "Hey, we need you to be a bit better. You can't roll out the same." lattes in giant glasses and things like that that, that match your, your global brand standards because you know the market is telling us that that's that's not what they want so i think it's a really interesting time where where the perhaps the friction of the negotiation actually creates really good outcomes because it means like, okay we might stretch ourselves to go some people might say don't stray from your core business which is hospitality why would you get into accommodation but then, then we might say, well, we see if we get more into accommodation and we can control that demographic that's coming into the, the rooms side of the business, then we, how can we then maximise those customers back into our F&B? I think ultimately it comes back to what the right project has got to work. So not every project, the really big ones with three, 400 rooms clearly are, you know, where, where the big boys play. But, I mean, to the great examples you brought up, some of those sort of boutique Properties that might be, you know, 40, 50, 60 to 100, 100 rooms, then I think, you know, with the right person managing it, anyone can kind of technically own as long as they've got good, good systems in place. I don't want to draw too long a bow on it, but it's, it feels like food and beverage, and it probably always has, to be honest, in terms of consumers' expectations shifting, but it feels like it's happening in a lot of different environments quite quickly right now. Like if you look at Maryvale moving into the stadium, for example, I know that's not similar to what we're talking about now, but I think that kind of move happens because consumers aren't happy with the base level of product that you traditionally get in a stadium. Though, you know, Stadiums New South Wales or Venues New South Wales wants to bring in a premium provider like Maryvale to lift that experience. And it's, it's, it is the same thing that, you know, I'm not saying anything negative about our accommodation clients who deliver food and beverage because many do it to a very high standard as well. But more broadly, maybe consumer expectations are shifting up in terms of what they expect in every location as opposed to understanding historically maybe the food might not have been that good at the SCG, you know? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And, and I don't see it as a bad thing. I don't see it as us trying to take on the big hotel giants or anything like that. I think it's, you know, it, with the right mindset, we, we're all fighting over providing the best experience for the customer. So if we pitch in for a particular project and it's too too big for us and we don't get it, then if if we're not the right fit to deliver that customer experience, and that's totally fine. Um, but I think it's a good good debate and a good thing for all of us as operators to fight over because ultimately the customer's going to win out, and that really should be our our focus aside from you know developing our own people, of course. Mm. Yeah, oh, you, you've given me a lot to think about, not least of all uh, curation of that panel next year. So I'm sure we'll, we'll go out mine if we invite you on and you can kind of give us a bit of a – because it is, it is. I think, you're, you're quite right, Luke, with the – it's just the overall expectation of what you get when you're out. It's got to kind of um, keep, keep up with what people can – can have elsewhere right that's kind of the macro macro and there's no nowhere to hide anymore i think um, you're saying the grand view is like the oldest license in queensland is it i'd love to know the history like what is the is it kind of here's it we've, we've landed let's just set up a foot our pub and then we'll worry about the rest of uh the city later is that what happened with it or what's the history of it yeah, I don't know the technicalities between obviously the, the oldest pub and the oldest licensed pub, but it's uh, 1851, I think it goes goes back to, and has always been a pub in in the area. But it's just a beautiful site, uh, and I think Cleveland's sort of an up and coming area. Um, but yeah, the, the building's 
magnificent and and being on a large parcel of land there's obviously a lot of lot of scope to development which which you know i won't shy away from that's definitely part of the attraction yeah for sure Um, Luke's, Luke's uh, normally the one who starts burrowing into. I had a go at it recently asking about stuff. I'll leave it to <laughs> well, I mean, I'm going to throw another two-part question at you. Um, firstly, I think leadership across um, – I mean, if you look at – put your venues out on a map, obviously, uh, they're very spread out. Like if you're going from Townsville down to the Conti, um, pretty big distance. So, I mean – Again, reference last time we caught up, you were talking about how you actually look to engage with the teams, given they are so spread out, and making sure that they do feel the love. Um, so I guess I'm I'm interested to kind of um, recount your approach to leadership, given the the diverse spread of location, and then also just let yeah dig into the people topic because again you're going to have a different insight to some of our other guests, maybe not Mario, but you know your, your challenges on the peninsula are probably very different to your challenges in Townsville. So how how are you finding it at the moment? Yeah, like absolutely. I mean, well, to sort of answer the first part of the question, you know, we we are proudly a, a values-driven business. Um, what I mean by that is we have a clear set, a clear vision, a clear purpose, and a clear set of values that we're very passionate about. And I know that sounds like a corporate thing to say, but we, we spend a lot of time and a lot of beers and a whiteboard haggling over what are, what are the important words and what what means a lot to us. And then we thought, okay, well. How do we then sell this to a young person that comes in and they go, that's great, you got a vision, you got a purpose, you got all these values. I've heard that before. So prove it. You know, prove that these things are important to you. And what metrics have you got in place to actually track it? So we've actually built our whole business around that. So we sort of say there's three traffic lights for us, people, people number one, customer number two and finance number three. And it's kind of in, in that order, although it is a bit of an um, equation that each have got to work with one another. But we feel like if you get the people right, as in our people, deliver on our vision, which is to create amazing experiences, then the customers are happy. And then if the customers are happy and the people are right, the finances work themselves out. You know, some of your larger operators will probably say, oh, well, finance has got to be number one because if you don't have financial stability, you're not going to grow. But there's plenty of us in head office that can run a spreadsheet and crunch numbers and all that sort of stuff. What we really want is to have our people to be proud and inspired and really engaged in our vision and what we're trying to achieve to deliver that amazing experience so our customers come back and it's just bums on seats and then the finances literally work themselves out. So we track that quite diligently. We have a team engagement survey that goes out once a week to 25% of each each of of each of the staff per venue so we can run metrics weekly and then track trends so we don't sort of see the traffic lights as if you get a green light hey luke well done you get a pat on the back it's more like what's the trend have you had two green lights in a row or is it you know once you move to an orange or a red and if it is a red we don't go down there and you know yell and scream it's more like how do, what do we need to do what levers do we need to pull to turn this into a into an orange so it's a pretty simple way of, of looking at it but that's kind of how we structure our, our businesses and we feel like to your point before about being nimble throughout the, the country we can respond pretty quickly because by tracking the trends 
we will pretty much back ourselves. We can kind of see a trend shifting in, an, in a way that, that's not good. We can respond really quick and then go, right, we need to – is it our ops team that needs to get up there and work on, on our people and our operational governance or is it the marketing that needs to go up there and reset the pricing strategy or, or PR or whatever it might be? And we feel like by doing that, we're keeping our people engaged in, in how you know the business runs in a simple way but also connected to the, the overall vision. So then with regards to the people challenges and uh, to the second part of the question, I mean, I think, you know, people talk about, oh, there's a hospitality crisis and there's a staffing crisis and I don't know, I just don't buy into that. And maybe I'm a bit glasses half full at times, but I kind of think, well, we're going to look back on this in not too distant future and actually go, you know, that's made us be better recruiters. It's made us be better trainers and developers we've put systems in place and you know we've built a nationally accredited training program called the kick on academy because we've recognized that we can't put a job out job ad out and say minimum two years experience for a bar supervisor we've got to actually hire on on attitude so therefore if we have our vision and our purpose and our values really clear we hire the right person with the right attitude with zero experience and we say right we are now fully committed to developing you and we've got the process and the structure and the systems in place to do so. So we'll get you from zero experience to what would have been two years' experience in, you know, maybe six months. And I think that's just the way it is at the moment. So I don't I don't sort of lean to that path of just complaining about it and saying, oh, well, it's the government's fault, it's COVID, it's, it's immigration, it's whatever else. You know, it is what it is. The only way to get through it is to make it work for us. And I think... When the borders become more fluent and we get more international travellers and the universities are back thriving and all that sort of stuff, we're going to be in a great position because our training and our recruitment and all those sort of structures are going to be really sharp. And I don't know, you could argue that maybe they should have been always that good and perhaps this so-called crisis has just exposed a few companies that just have to really put the time, effort and energy into developing their people that they should have. So maybe it's a wake-up call for all of us, but I think that we're really focused on making sure that we work hard to put those processes in place. Are you feeling different pressures across Victoria as opposed to Queensland? Yeah, I think it's, yes, I think it's probably the honest answer. Queensland, um, yeah, performance-wise, the, the venues are flying, which is which is great. I think, you know, it's obviously great beer drinking weather, which which, <laughs> which helps. I can attest to that right now. Like <laughs> 33 degrees and perfect sunshine outside, and this beer is very good. Yeah, um, the Melbourne City, so the Terminus has been has been a good example of great leadership in that venue that's held their staff. So throughout all the challenges Victoria's had, they've hardly lost anyone. They've got a really tight tight knit team, so they haven't needed to recruit a lot, which is a real testament to the culture there. The Conti obviously is a, is a challenge because of like the location and the size of the business that. You know, where I think we'll be constantly recruiting for that space, uh, everything from senior managers all the way through to, you know, your, your function level staff. Um, but, you know, we, we knew that. I don't think that's a surprise to anybody, um, hence why we kind of go, okay, well, can we create greater efficiencies in our operations of how we set up functions and do things like that so we're not totally reliant on having X amount of staff in the business? You know, you want, obviously you don't want to overwork your staff, but it's definitely a bit more of a challenge and as a result we've just put more resources around being dedicated to driving recruitment down there.
got to, I've got to be honest. Like I, I, um, I, when, when you raised this publishing thing earlier, I know we're going backwards now, but, uh, um, I was, uh, I was thinking about it because, um, running time out. And then have you seen this, um, Swill House, um, Swill magazine that's come out? So no. the Swill House group in, um, Sydney, Anton Forte, uh, He's, uh, they've, they've put out a publication, actually. It's called Swill. Um, and I was just wondering whether, you know, you've, um, you've, you've put the publishing thing behind you or you, you, you have ambitions in that direction still. So this is a bit of a bizarre question to ask, but I have to, I have to ask it. No, that's a great question. Um, look, the, it's, still in, it's still in there because where it kind of stems from is I remember years ago, might have been Bobby McGee's, maybe I was sitting down, we were doing a marketing activation. I had one of the marketing guys from Coca-Cola um, and he said to me, man, you know, what I would give to be in your position from a marketing point of view. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like this was when Coke were doing those big ads, you know, the beach book on the on the beach and all that sort of stuff. I said, you guys are the best marketers in the, in the world. He goes, no, and he said, hospitality, like you, it's the greatest sensory brand experience you can get. He goes, all we can do is TV and, and print and then obviously the, the product is the product. But he said, you know, you got sight, sound, atmosphere, memory, you got all the things that the real marketer really wants. And that kind of really resonated with me. So I kind of think with to your point about the, the publishing, it's more around, you know, and I think the likes of Maryvale and Justin do that really well. They're building brands, not just a corner pub or not just a, a restaurant. So, you know, with that, I think, you know, I became very passionate about logos and colours and printing and branding and advertising because it all it's all part of that the great mystery of the jigsaw puzzle of the perfect hospitality business. It's not just about how efficiently you can run and what's your cogs and labour, but it's like, well, does the concept that you're presenting resonate with what the customer's expectation is and is the music and lighting and atmosphere, like are all the pieces of the puzzle working working together? And I think that's sort of the, the beauty of the publishing world was, I think for us when we had Drink Magazine, it was the, the alcohol companies say, well, go on, you know, because obviously they wanted to, the strategy was they wanted to, you know, if Absolute Vodka were bring out a new flavour, they wanted to get that into all the cool bars so we'd say okay well you pay for our feature and we'll go you know do it like an advertorial kind of kind of thing so yeah it was it was all about trying to get the brand into the the venue so they could create the experience i think that that passion will will never die because that's sort of how i look at hospitality i mean you just referenced some consumer trends what are you seeing at the moment i I saw it there was an article came out from the shout today talking about you know premiumization slowing down which is going to lead on it's not a part two question but i've I'll reference my next question, which is going to be about your financial forecast for next year. So maybe this is a part two question, but what are you seeing in consumers um, right now, I guess, and has have you, is there any noticeable shifts maybe between current market and what you're seeing pre-COVID? Yeah, we, we're heavily focused on data um, and we're calling it our tech Sequence of service, or the marketing guys are calling it TSOS, um, which is all about. I think obviously the QR code ordering is is a part of that. You know, postcode, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I read an interesting survey that talked about seventy percent of today's customers expect technology to be part of their experience. Yet seventy five percent of the same group surveyed want greater human interaction. So. I've got my eye on you know what what is the perfect balance of technology and experience, noting that service has always got to be the foundation of, of good hospitality. There's no there's there's not I don't buy the fact there's gonna be a silver bullet which is technology and everyone can auto order their stuff. That might be great for efficiencies, but 
I don't think any customer is going to go home and go, wow, I just had the best time at that venue because everything was automated. So we're now looking at, okay, well, and I'm not saying QR code ordering is is not good. We, we certainly use Mr. Young a lot and it's a great partnership with them, but it's also about, okay, well, all this data is flowing in. How can we then start to use that data more and more effectively to create greater customer experiences? So I think the analysis of that will create some future trends. I, I couldn't say exactly what it is yet, but I'm pretty confident the solution is, is getting that balance right. I mean, obviously, fine dining is not going to rely on too much on technology, but they will from a sense of customer profiling. So when you book in the restaurant, they know your favourite table, they know the, the bottle of wine that you ordered last time, and that's where my head's at. It's all about that data collation and analysis that then can flow seamlessly back into the the venue operations. So it's not having a, a team of data analysts that are just crunching spreadsheets, but it's like getting it, analysing it and spitting it back out so the team can use it to enhance the, the guest experience. Now, there's a 100 different apps you can do that can do that, but, again, you don't want to just layer on, you know, constant software over software over software because it gets too too complicated. So that's sort of what we're seeing, I think, in our venues because they're, they're casual premialisations, I'm not sure. Like we're, we're seeing pretty strong spend per heads, like our post-COVID spend per heads definitely a lot higher than, than pre in both venues that have Mr. Yum and spaces that are a la carte. I think my, my feeling is people are spending well when they come out. They may not be coming out as much as they used to, but your local pub and your family-friendly environment, I think, is still a bit of a cornerstone because we've all missed that through the through the lockdown. I don't think that's really dropped off yet, but I think in our in our more premium dining spaces, people are certainly there to to have a good time. And the second part, how are you feeling about next year? Uh, something Mario referenced on his podcast. I guess if I'm recapping what he said correctly, it was um, that there's cautious optimism. I think may have been the term that he used, and they, you know, they feel like quite widely reported. Basically, obviously, there's a little bit of pain coming, but still feeling optimistic about, the, you know, the the reality of it when when the time comes. How are you looking at next year? Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, we're we're pretty confident because I think we're in an acquisition phase at the moment, so. You know, we, we've grown 300% over the last 12 months and we're forecast to probably grow another 300% over the next 12 months. So our our growth will come from acquisitions as much as it will be natural growth. But, yeah, we, we, we feel like it's the stabilisation of, of the businesses is now getting some pretty some good data coming through in terms of uh, revenue trends, being pricing, Pricing's been interesting because I think every venue's had to put pricing up because of the cost of produce, and I don't, I haven't seen a lot of strong backlash from customers. I think they kind of accept that venues have got to adapt due to the environment, which is really good because um, we're a bit nervous about doing that too quickly because, you know, with interest rates and the like, you know, there's a bit of sensitivity around there. But so no, I think next year we're we're very confident. A with obviously excited about our grow through acquisition but also i think the existing businesses will have a nice nice natural growth with this strong support nice (laughs) 
anything else that we haven't covered? Mike, have you got anything or is there anything, Duncan, that you want to sorry, dive deeper into? Um, not necessarily. I guess maybe, you know, like flip the questions back to you guys. Like, you know, you've obviously had some really good chats with some great industry leaders. Like, uh, are you seeing uh, sort of a similarity in, in the mindset that we're all looking at or are you still seeing a lot of diverse thinking from, from the industry? No one's ever done this before. And for listeners, uh, we we've uh, we we are doing a virtual beer at the moment, just um, because it's the last episode of the year. But uh, um, I, I I was reflecting actually in in the last series of uh, interviews that we have done that there is some common themes emerging and. What I would caveat with is that we are also interviewing some of the best brains in the sector. So I think, um, you, you know, the, the, which is as you'd expect, therefore, you know, not, not everyone's saying exactly the same thing, but there are some pretty pretty clear trends. Technology use is one, uh, and um, that came through quite strongly. Um, I think uh, in, in speaking to Mario and also uh, James Thorpe, he's thinking about use of AI in venues and things like that. Not, not necessarily saying what the future is, but just... That's where the level of thinking's gone. I think that's one commonality. The other thing that I'm, I'm going to just throw out there uh, a little bit because, and I'm very Sydney-centric at the moment, but I think that um, pub sector in particular is pretty, if you, if you go pubs, bars, restaurants, I, I think the pub sector is pretty well positioned um, for the next 12 months. And particularly around its, its food offering in, in, in comparison to potential um, fine dining or, or high-end dining in particular and and partly and it's not to demean by any stretch pubs in terms of the quality of food they put out but uh, just because of the scale of the operation the systems-led approach and to some degree more limited choice as you might get in a restaurant it's kind of to someone as an outside observer it better matches the staffing challenge that's currently in the market and uh, I, I think um, that from a consumer perspective there's not much gap between you know pubs that are doing a really good job on food and then what you might get in some restaurants. Um, and so, you know, the, for the price trade-off, though, it's like, well, hang on a second, <laughs> there is a bigger gap. And um, so I think that that's one of the things I, I would uh, observe as not necessarily a prediction, but I'm comforted in the fact that the pub, pub has a really strong role to play if, uh, as, you know, the macro indicates, um, you know, there may be a bit of a tapering in the next 12 months due to affordability and inflation. I don't know what you think. Yeah. No, I certainly agree with that. We, we feel pretty confident in the public for a couple of reasons. One, because there's still a bit of that. Everybody loves the pub. You know, we all want to go back to the pub. And uh, you're spot on about the food. I mean, that's probably the big thing we've seen post-code is the food revenue is, is um, you know, what was traditionally maybe like a 60-40 split food to bev. It's now almost 50 to 50. And the customer behaviour has shifted a little bit where there's not a lot of strong demand for vertical drinking, at least in our venues. Like people aren't rushing to the pub to stand up in a packed environment. They want to book a table and sit down, even if it's a bunch of guys that have just come from a golf weekend, they still want a table and they might sit there and share a pizza and smash a dozen beers, but they still want to sit down. So you could then start to look at your capacity versus revenue. You think, okay, well, it really comes down to spend per seat. Um, and we're noticing the Conti, like the demand of the Conti is just enormous. Like we're just 
we just can't fit everybody in the space all the time. Um, and then when people go, I'll oh, just stand over there and have a drink, I go, oh, no, we'll, we'll come back a bit later. So I don't know if that's because COVID made everyone sit down and pre-order or whether people just go once they've tried it and they like it, they go, why not? Why would I stand up when I can sit down? But Yeah, you do. I do wonder about that as well. Like I think uh, um, I, I was out uh, last night in Sydney and it, it's incredible time of year in Sydney at the moment. And um, and I couldn't get to three venues though that full. And and this was early in the evening. I, what I did observe is, and I was reflecting on uh, my, my earlier days um, in, in my 20s, whereas you need to go in with elbows, right, to get to the bar to like, manage, <laughs> yeah. the, manage your way through the line. And, and, it's, and it's just not socially acceptable at all. Like, and so I found myself in venues where there's a, you know, a queuing system with a few um, people dodging the line. I wasn't necessarily one of them, although, you know, that grey hair of experience came through as a sort of, slipped a little bit but i i just think there is a bit of a, a, a you know a generational shift in the market and that makes sense it does make sense you know like in, in concentrated areas of um in sydney where you've had tree tree change sea change so some people leaving the market and then a new generation of people coming in who just basically have better manners i think is probably what i'd put <laughs> down to but uh, i don't know like, i think it, i think I, I actually think it's a little bit here to stay and because the consumer experience has gotten better so uh, we'll, we'll see though. I'll be proven wrong at, uh, um, the, the, at a World Cup final soon, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought I was getting old, but I, I, I honestly can't stand being in environments where you're kind of jammed in with people like all, all lining up for, for things. It's just not a nice experience at all. No, I think that's when the opportunity is, uh, I mean, obviously the experience is, is a bit different, but it means when you're sitting down, to your point before about premiumization, I'd argue, well, that is the opportunity because some, if a group of people are sitting down at a table in a comfortable environment or, or the music's funky or whatever it might be, then it's, it's more easy to then upsell them into a premium cocktail or a nicer bottle of wine because if you're standing up, you know, you're not going to order a, a fancy bottle of wine and try to, you know, decant it under one arm or anything like that. So, you know, again, that's where we go back to our customer profiling and, Doing some great project work with with Mr. Yama's example, the same. Well, you know, through once you scan your phone, it can then integrate straight back to the point of sale system with then pings and says, "Luke Butler's in on table twenty two. Um, you know, he's tequila. <laughs> well, yeah, last, last time he was in with his staff, he had two bottles of tequila. But then the staff hey, nice to see you again. Here's a here's a shot of tequila on the house. And you go, oh wow, you know, isn't that cool? So, Duncan, I've got to ask you. Um, I may regret this. Why no New South Wales yet? And I'm using the word yet there as a bit of an invitation to carry on. <laughs> uh, no, good question. We've, we are open to all areas and um, there's a few sites we've had a really good good look at. I think probably the honest answer is we've got a lot of respect for some of the operators in, in New South Wales and um, not that we don't respect the ones in Queensland or, or Victoria, but, you know, whilst into someone's backyard saying, oh, yeah, the Melbourne guys, there was one site we were looking at doing sort of a rooftop we thought, oh, maybe we could put a Melbourne spin on like the Melbourne style rooftop in Sydney. But we go, no, I think Sydney siders just hate that. <laughs> it probably comes back to the right site. What I was saying before about it. if the site's right and it fits our portfolio, and we're confident we can deliver what the market will want, then absolutely we'll we'll go in there. But um, uh, it's also like it's a new market. We know Victoria, we know Queensland, so it's it's naturally easy to to grow on on those sides of things. But I think the the northern beach strip. We're sort of interested in like northern New South Wales, where the the pub isn't necessarily the, the iconic 
site that's going to be in timeout or broadsheet or that sort of stuff, but it might be a big fish in a small pond in terms of being really in, important for the local community and has that tourist spike in, in summer. So there's a few really good assets like that that we'll, we certainly wouldn't hesitate to pick up. This doesn't, I'm not detracting from the final five question about venue, but if you could buy any pub in Australia, which one would it be? Oh, pub? Venue, anything. Oh, I think being Victorian, like we all love the SB. I think what the Sand Hill Road boys did to that, you know, and kept its its um, style, I think it was just incredible. So it would be a great one to have up north. Hard to go past Burley Heads Pavilion sitting out there on the deck. Those ones that have got the location that, you know, like no one's going to build a uh, an apartment tower in front of it. And when you've got ocean ocean views on a sunny day with a cold beer, it's, you know, you, you just can't, can't beat that. Be. Mm. What would you buy, Michael? <laughs> North Annandale, mate. Like it's uh, <laughs> exactly it's exactly a hundred meters away from my house, and I feel like we. Uh, um, no, I, I, I could I could appreciate two assets at once if you get my drift there. But, uh, uh, yeah, no, I, I don't know. It's, but it's interesting, isn't it? The uh, the the SB's just got to be one of like uh, if we if we ran a competition like a, a vote on you know Australia's favourite pub, it'd, it'd be in the top ten for sure. You would think because it's uh, just so highly regarded by the trade, and I'm sure consumers as well comes up all the time. Pretty good um, case study of how to not fuck up a big renovation of an iconic venue, right? Like, because they could have gone south really badly, but like, yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. Hey, that like, I think it has really, um, you know, shaped the way that um, people think about custodianship. Like, it, 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 since um, since uh, Sandhill took it, and that t- word came out, and and now it's used all the time in in terms of uh, you know these because they're community assets fundamentally at the same point of time. Like you know that's the that's that's what the pub is really. It's a public house, and it's uh, I've had a had a quick look at the Abercrombie, uh, which is going to reopen very imminently. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's uh, and it's similar. It's it, they've kind of respected the bones and you know thought about a few things, but uh, you know you know the old venue. Yeah, well, I think yeah. I mean, you're spot on. It's a great word, custodianship, because Maddie and the, and the boys when they went in there, that even though the pre PR they were doing, you could you could tell that they were genuinely really passionate about the actual building, and we certainly resonate with that with with some of our sites. That I, I think if if you don't, then it just becomes a business that you can churn and burn, and then it's just about how how you know like get the customers in, get as much money as you can, get them out. But when you start talking about, you know, the, the physical building and being a custodian of this community asset, then it's, you know, it's got a it's got a soul to it that you have to respect. And I think if you get that right, then customers naturally gravitate to it. And then those traffic lights I was talking about before work, work well, great environment, great atmosphere, great staff, people are happy to spend, you know, your business stacks up. Indeed. That's a pretty positive, uh, positive outlook, I reckon. Luke, final five, you reckon, at this point? Yeah, let's do it. So, favourite podcast that you're listening to or book that you have recently read? So, I've probably got two, but one book that kind of caught me by surprise, a friend said, was Green Lights by Matthew McConaughey. It's surprisingly insightful in terms of life philosophies and the like. Like, the way he writes it is very, very good. The audio book's really good because he actually reads the audio book and you've got his style, but he... It's a bit of his life story, but it's also about some of the life lessons that he picks up and 
he's got a really good way that he links car bumper stickers to uh, to life lessons. So that was really good. And then most recently just finished The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek that I'm a bit of a fan of and follow his work through through podcasts. The latter I've read, but I wonder whether when you're reading um, the former, you just hear Matt McConaughey's voice in your head the whole time. You may as well hit the audiobook version. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, one of our directors said, I can't believe you got me on that green lights, the audio book, because, you know, my wife's listening to it all the time. She goes, I think she's secretly having an affair with my comedy. I got to work. <laughs> Most likely. Favourite album or artist right now, or ever, really? What's, what's your go-to when you, um, when you want to listen to some music? Go-to is probably, I think now that I'm, I'm not saying I'm old, but maybe I'm reflecting on that. So sort of go back to the old stuff when you're growing up, like, NXS, Die Straits, those sort of ones. But my uh, life is probably consumed a little bit at the moment by Lewis Capaldi because my wife's a big fan of his and then my kids, my two daughters have um, sabotaged my Spotify playlist so it's uh, full of TikTok influencers as well. Hey, uh, I don't know whether you got the Spotify, here's the end of your year thing. Did you get that? I was just like, my, my Spotify has been hacked by my daughters. It's like uh, number one, two, three at the moment. But anyway, I think we're all in the same boat. I had listened to an, uh, an obscene amount of Encanto last year, apparently, like just crazy. Let, let, let's not talk about Bruno, but what about you? <laughs> oh, mate. <laughs> now I'm going to have that stuck in my head for like the next three hours. It's my favourite song of all time. Um, in terms of drinks, uh, what is your go-to? What are you drinking right now? Oh, look, we're big fans of Stone and Wood, so I'd be I'd be shot if I don't um, give a shout out to our to Ross and our mates because we don't certainly drink a lot of, a lot of that. I love gin, so um, sort of been trying to explore the gin and soda combos at the moment. There's some really good sort of soda mixes coming out, and obviously trying to cut down on the tonic a little bit. But um, yeah, it's well, or, or a Negroni can I never go past a really good Negroni, so. That'll be my go-to. I think we need to change the name of this podcast to the Negroni podcast, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Favourite venue anywhere in the world of any description? Oh, uh, look, in, I mean, obviously we mentioned um, Billy Pavilion. I love Mr Wong's and Palmer and Co. I think as a, as a night out, that's pretty impressive when you can go in there and have always great vibe, great food in Mr Wong's and then duck downstairs to kick on. It's such a unique unique thing so um yeah i wouldn't really go to sydney without ducking into there overseas overseas i'd never forget you always remember those little cool places when you're when you're on holidays years ago at san sebastian in um spain and there's this tiny little cafe literally on the beach it looked pretty average but you know breathtaking views and the food that came out of this tiny little place was just incredible it's beautiful pinchos local stuff like it's every restaurateur's dream but just done they just go oh that's how we always do it you know and i was we'll never forget that that's probably the answer yeah good uh <laughs> finally uh who in the industry are you most inspired by oh that sounds cheesy but our staff you know that's that's my my focus is to you know, build a culture with our team and you know when i see i see some of our especially the younger ones do pretty cool stuff that, that's pretty inspiring from an industry point of view um oh, look i've always been a big fan of justin and aj and the, the merivale team about how they go about creating sorry how they go about acquiring really clever assets and turning them into into brands so pretty pretty impressive to, to see if we could do a bit of that that'd be a, a great great 
Nice. Well, um, thank you very much for joining us on the last back of house of the year. Pleasure having you and, uh, yeah, thanks for your time. My pleasure, guys. Thanks so much for having me on. All the best, Duncan. Mm-hmm.